Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. Wow, what an entrance. You know, we hear nothing about Elijah until he bursts on the scene here in 1 Kings 17. He seems to come out of nowhere. You know, this prophet sent by God to confront the king of Israel. I love the story of Elijah. You know, the Bible is not a book of philosophy. It's certainly not a book of rules. It's a magnificent story that we enter into, and it tells us how Almighty God, the creator of all things, relates to his people, his beloved creation. God makes himself known through these stories of ordinary men and women, and the story of Elijah is no exception. You know, we may think of Elijah as this mysterious, almost legendary prophet, the man of God who called down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. But when you read his whole story, you find that he was actually, well, pretty ordinary. He certainly knew times of great courage, but there was also a time when he ran for his life. He could be full of compassion for a widow who had lost her son, but then be consumed with self-pity. He had amazing faith and commitment, but at times was overwhelmed with depression and despair. You might say he was a man of contradictions. You might say he was a man just like us. And that's how James describes Elijah in his New Testament letter. A man with a nature like ours. A man with the same weaknesses and frailties. An ordinary man who God had called into relationship with himself. And so we can learn a lot about how God relates to us as we read his story. But what is the story here? There's obviously a backstory to the scene that Elijah burst onto. The king he was confronting was Ahab, the seventh king of Israel. And under Ahab, the people of Israel had totally lost their way. It was a time of terrible darkness. Ahab had married a pagan princess called Jezebel, and she'd persuaded him to eradicate the worship of Yahweh, the true and living God, the God of Israel, and replace it with the worship of Baal, which should be pronounced Baal. Baal was the pagan fertility god, worshipped by many of the surrounding nations, now worshipped in the land of Israel. And it meant that many of the prophets who served Yahweh had to hide in caves to escape Jezebel's fanatical persecution as she sought to silence the voice of God to his people. There had been a time when two million of their ancestors had heard God's voice as they stood before him at Mount Sinai and heard him say, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. He also spoke to them through Moses, saying he had chosen them as a people because he'd loved them and because of the promise he'd given to their father Abraham that he would bless him and that all the nations would be blessed through his descendants. They were to have a special relationship with God. And God spelled out what that looked like when he said, You shall have no other gods besides me. Because they were his beloved people, his representatives, chosen to carry out his purposes, to be a light to the nations. And under King David and his son Solomon, their light shone brightly as they became established in the land that God had given them. A magnificent temple was built where God's presence would reside. And the worship of Yahweh rang out day and night. 
People came from all over to see, even the Queen of Sheba, because of the blessing of God that was there. But within just two generations, the light had virtually gone out. Think about that. It took just 60 years. That's my lifetime. Two generations. It was after Solomon that the nation split in half. And then the northern kingdom of Israel, each successive king was worse than the one before until Ahab, where the worship of God was almost extinguished. The voice of God silenced. The people of God had forgotten who they were. They turned to worship the gods of the surrounding nations like Baal. Instead of depending on the true living God, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who had called them and made them his own, instead of trusting in his ability to provide, they wanted control. They saw how the gods of the other nations seemed to work for them, how Baal, the, the god of fertility, brought the much-needed rain for their harvests. And all they needed to do was satisfy him as they engaged in his worship by having sex with temple prostitutes and even sacrificing their own babies as part of this demonic cultic practice. But it gave them a feeling of control. And so the nation slipped into darkness. They'd lost their way. Practices that were unthinkable two generations earlier were now accepted and celebrated. The Ten Commandments were a thing of the past. The special relationship they once had with God, now forgotten. And that is the scene that Elijah stepped into. Now, why is this relevant to us? I know there are many Christians who would like to draw the comparison between the moral decline of Israel and the moral decline of America today. But before we draw any conclusions, we need to remember that Israel were God's covenant people. America is not. Israel was called into this special relationship in order to be a blessing and a light to the nations. They were the people through whom the Saviour was to come. It's the same calling that the church has today through the Saviour, Jesus Christ. We are his covenant people. And therefore, instead of judging the moral state of our society and uh, calling the nation back to God, we should first be looking at our own hearts and calling the church back to God. However, what happened to Israel could also be seen as a picture of all mankind. You know, their desire to be in control of their lives, uh, to be able to control the world around them, it really is the same sin as the first humans who were created in the image of God to be his representatives. And yet, instead of trusting God and depending upon him, Adam and Eve chose to take matters into their own hands, to be as gods. It's the sin of all mankind. And the result is people who have lost their way, lost their purpose, who don't know who they are anymore. And when we turn away from God, it leads to moral and spiritual decay. It leads to death. I was shocked to read an article recently called The Rise of the New Gods by Mandy Kaminsky. And it's about the MAID program in Canada. MAID stands for Medical Assistance in Dying, otherwise known as assisted suicide here in the United States. And since it was legalized in 2016, 
over 30,000 Canadians have been assisted in ending their lives. And we're not just talking about helping adults to die when they have a terminal disease. You don't have to be terminally ill to be eligible. I read on the government website that from March next year, mental illness is being considered as an acceptable reason to help someone to end their life. And there are cases where people have been told it would be better for everyone else if they did so. In a recent survey, around 50% of 18 to 34 year old Canadians thought that people living in poverty or who are disabled should be helped to die if they want to. You know, if they're suffering from despair, loneliness, depression, and so on, like that's a good solution for helping the most vulnerable. As Mandy Kaminsky comments, we find ourselves unashamedly applauding our neighbor's right to die because he is lonely, even as we refuse to invite him over for dinner. In fact, there was a recent scandal where it came to light that veterans who had written to the government requesting disability aid, instead of being helped, were told they were welcome to take advantage of the MAID program. And what is frightening is that it's all being done in the name of compassion. Because you see, it's compassionate to put people out of their misery. Or as the British author Glenn Scrivener puts it, we eliminate suffering by eliminating sufferers and then call it compassion. It's just different gods, different flavors of hell on earth, says Kaminsky. Now that may not be law in America yet, but you know it's knocking on the door. When man turns away from God and forgets who he is and what he's been put on the earth for, then spiritual and moral decay that follows leads to a radical distortion of what is good and right and even loving. A whole view of life becomes disordered and things that would have been unthinkable two generations ago become celebrated as the rule of law. So, what did Elijah do? He prayed. He didn't just complain about the state of the nation, he prayed. He didn't get all angry and resentful, he prayed. He didn't get anxious about things getting worse, no, he prayed. He didn't throw his hands in the air and say, I'm out of here, no, he stayed and he prayed. He didn't say, well, you know, what can I do about it? No, he knew what to do, Elijah was moved to pray. How do we know that? Doesn't actually tell us that in the story. We do see him praying later on for the rain to come. But when Elijah first went to Ahab and prophesied it wasn't going to rain, it's because he had been praying. How do we know that? Because James tells us so in his letter. Let's read what he says. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We might be tempted to exclude ourselves when we read that and say, well, my prayers won't have much power then. But then we read this. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He had the same frailties and passions as us. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Now, do you think it was Elijah's idea to pray that there would be no rain? I doubt it because in 1 Kings 18, it says in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. 
So it tells us that it was God who was directing Elijah. It must have been God who sent Elijah to Ahab in the first place. Elijah said to the king, I stand before God. He was God's representative and he was prophesying to Ahab what God had told him to pray. This wasn't his idea. It was God's initiative. Elijah was speaking for God. So what was Elijah doing when God told him to pray for no rain? Well, I suspect he was already praying. Isn't that when God most often speaks to his people, when we're praying to him, when we spend time with him, talking to him? Because prayer is a conversation, isn't it? God reveals himself to us. He gives us direction as we are seeking him. It's what we see Elijah doing throughout his story. Time and time again, we see him calling upon the Lord. And what do you think Elijah would have been praying about when God spoke to him? Well, I think we get some insight in 1 Kings 19, where Elijah says to God, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. He was zealous for God's name, and he was also full of compassion for his people. He wasn't calling upon God to judge his people. He knew from their history that God was a God of mercy. And so when he had the great showdown with the prophets of Baal on the Mount Carmel, he says to the Lord, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that their hearts may be turned back to you. That was his prayer, that his people might know God once again, the God who had given them their identity and purpose, that his people might once again love God with all their hearts and trust him, that God's name would once again be revered in the land. I want to suggest that's what Elijah was praying. And it's because he was praying that God answered him and told him to pray that there would be no rain. Because God in his mercy was going to show his people that their trust in Baal to bring them rain for the harvest was unfounded. That only the true living God, the creator of heaven and earth, could command the rain and make things fertile. He alone can control life and death. He is the one who can bring rain and fire because he alone is God. And when we, like Elijah, are zealous that people might know the living God, and when we catch God's heart for people who are lost, and gone astray, then we will pray too. And like Elijah, our prayers will be powerful and effective in carrying out God's purposes. Right? If we get nothing else from the story of Elijah, let it stir us to pray. Let's not waste a moment more of our precious time complaining or criticizing, deploring or despairing when we could be praying. As John Calvin wrote, prayer is the chief exercise of faith. Or we might say prayer is the chief task of the believer. Think about that. Isn't that why Jesus said on a number of occasions, ask and it will be given to you? Or keep on praying, don't give up. As the great Methodist Samuel Chadwick wrote, there is no power like that of prevailing prayer. It brings power. It brings fire, it brings rain, it brings life, it brings God. Prayer brings God. That's why Elijah prayed fervently, and so would we if we understood the power and effectiveness of our prayers. Prayer is the chief task and the primary influence of the believer. And that is why the main response to this message is not to discuss it, 
but to pray. And that's what I'm going to encourage you to do in a moment. But let me just close with this. The reason why Elijah could stand with confidence before the king was because he'd already stood before God in that secret place and prayed. He had come from the presence of God with a word from God. He was God's representative. And so are we. And so as we pray, God may well speak to us about making a stand. It might be at college or in the workplace. It might be before your family or uh, people in your community. He may call you to testify or to prophesy, not in judgment, but in love, so that they might know the Lord, so that their hearts might be turned towards him. But it could lead us to suffer for doing so. Elijah suffered. He suffered as a result of his own prayer. He prayed that there would be no rain, which meant that there would be a drought and a famine in the land. It meant that many would suffer, including Elijah. He didn't make plans to leave the country while there was a famine in the land. He didn't prepare a bunker for himself and stockpile three years of food and water. Instead, he trusted God, who led him to a brook where he was to be fed by ravens. And after a while, even the brook dried up. The point is, Elijah identified with the suffering of his own people. And therefore, he points us to Jesus. And that's how I want to conclude this, by pointing us to Jesus. As the writer to the Hebrews says, In the past God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, like Elijah. But in his last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Like Elijah, Jesus stood before a corrupt king, King Herod. He stood before the pagan powers, Pontius Pilate representing the might of Rome. And he said, the reason I came into this world was to testify to the truth. But it led him to suffer and die on the cross. But he willingly endured that because of his love for us and for all mankind. Listen, God's response to our suffering was not to end our lives. Thank God he didn't choose to put us out of our misery. But in true compassion, he came to heal us and to give us life. And he did that by coming himself in the flesh, not only to testify to the truth, but to identify with us in our suffering. And not just, just suffer with us, but to suffer for us. On the cross, he suffered and died in our place so that we could be delivered from darkness, so that we could be reconciled to God, and so that we could be restored to our true identity and purpose. Do you know God? Have you given up trying to control your life and put your trust in him? Can I urge you to do that today? Turn to Jesus Christ and put your faith in him. And if you do know God, if you know that you belong to him, then will you join me and stand before him right now and pray? Ask that God would forgive us for the times we have not prayed to him, but looked elsewhere for answers. Pray that God would give us his heart and compassion for the people around us. Pray that the church in America would be purified and would arise in this nation, not in judgment, but in bold love that through our words and actions, we would be a prophetic witness in our generation as we seek to follow the way of Christ. Pray for God to lead us by the Holy Spirit to show us where we're to go and what we are to say. And pray that it will be his words in our mouths and that we would have grace if called upon to suffer, even as Jesus did. 
Are you with me? Then let's pray.